Buffalo, New York. To the outsider, it may seem like a typical Rust Belt town, a city that may seem to have its best days behind it. But at the heart of Buffalo is a college filled with young people, digital technology, even an artificial intelligence research center, all powered by a vibrant bloodstream of data. These new data sources are not only revitalizing Buffalo, they may provide a beacon of hope for American cities everywhere. That's today on The Q Factor. Welcome back to The Q Factor. I'm Greg Fisher. We're still a fairly new series, so for those of you who don't know, the mission of The Q Factor is to help you see the world through a data-driven lens. Data is revolutionizing just about every corner of our world, and I believe that the more you know about what's happening inside the black box of quantitative thinking, the smarter choices you will be able to make with your money, your time, your loved ones, and your life. My guests on The Q Factor run the gamut. Thought leaders from the worlds of business, media, finance, criminal justice, anywhere and everywhere that's of interest to you. And my guest today works in a field that touches all of us, education. Dr. Satish Tripathi is a renowned data and computer scientist and the president of the State University of New York at Buffalo, which I'll refer to as UB during our conversation. I'll admit right up front that I have a personal tie to UB. I graduated from their School of Management in 1992. I'm on the Dean's Advisory Council, and I'm on the Board of Trustees for the University's Foundation and Endowment. But I've asked President Tripathi onto the Q Factor not because of my personal connection, but because his data-driven work is having a significant impact on UB, as well as the entire region of Western New York that the university serves. Dr. Tripathi is using data in the best possible way to help transform a regionally focused college into a global digital research center, and to help a new generation of young people enter a rapidly changing world armed with a versatile quantitative skill set. Here's our conversation. You know, I, I grew up in a, in a very small village in India, and you know, I was always intrigued by numbers and, and mathematics and, and how the numbers related to each other. Uh, and from very early on, sort of even uh, when I traveled to my uh, maternal uncle's place, which was about uh, 60 miles away and we had to take a train, and I was always interested in, in trying to figuring out, you know, how much time it takes, what routes people go by. So numbers always intrigued me. It's amazing how these, uh, these things early in our lives make such an impact. What year was that? Uh, so I came to Canada in 1972, but I first came to Edmonton, and I did a master's in statistics. Wow. And then in 74, I shifted to uh, University of Toronto. Remember, computer science those days was not the same as today. You know, all we had were uh, the big machines and punch cards. I mean, those were really the, the, the real uh, interface with the computers. But again, my interest in numbers, my work for my thesis was really to look at large computer systems, collect data on their usage, and try to model those and predict their performance. So that really was very early on in my, uh, my work in terms of computer systems. So again, uh, the, the common theme really has been data. It's fascinating. I think about your journey, you know, a small village in India where you're born. Right. 
the early 1970s, somehow getting interested in computers and data science at a very early time and an early age, traveling all the way here to the West and, uh, you know, Canada, then eventually the U.S., and getting involved in all this, it's, uh, it's remarkable. You know, you're a computer science professor at Maryland and UC Riverside. Then you come to UB in 2004, which I was thinking about 2004. Coincidentally, that's the year that this little company called Facebook launched. That's true, although I didn't be- become a member for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I fought that for a while also. Um, you know, it's, I, someone was, I was talking about the year I started my firm, Gerstein Fisher. It was 1992. I think it was like a year or two later, the first text message got sent. Right. It's just hard to put these things into perspective. But so it's 2004. Facebook's created, you know, this data revolution is starting. And uh, you're, you arrive in Western New York. You talked about some of these initiatives at UB. But tell us a little bit more about the, the maybe some of the challenges at that point in Western New York. I think a lot of people that are listening across the country to our, our show today you know, when you when you think of Western New York, you might be thinking of an area that's, you know, what used to produce steel or flour. I don't know that people necessarily think of Western New York as being on the cutting edge of technology. Tell us a little bit about that region when you first got there versus where we are today. So Western New York, you know, has a great history, actually. Buffalo was one of the richest city 100 years ago. And as you mentioned, you know, very industrial city. It went through a lot of changes with Erie Canal and then Erie Canal getting sort of obsolete. And and, and then the industrialization changed as well. And so it went through really down period. But innovation was always here. If you think about Pacemaker, think about Great Patch, who was also faculty member at UB. You know, the Pacemaker was there, but to implant that, you needed to create batteries which could be implanted. And, And Great Patch was one who really invented that here in Buffalo. That's amazing. While, while he was here. So so think about the uh, the wipers on your cars. They were invented here. And I can go on and on with multiple inventions that happened in Buffalo. But overall, the, the whole region, and actually the whole Rust Belt, if you think about it, was really going through a down period. You know, think about the number of job losses in 1981, when the steel mill closes, you know, 20,000, 40,000 in a day. And that was devastating for the economy of Western New York. What were some of the contributing factors, so to speak, that you brought to UB at that time as it relates to data and science to make all this work? So when we came to Buffalo, that was 2004, we had a new president who had also come from California. I came from University of California, Riverside. University at Buffalo is a great institution. And we both started to think about really where to put some resources in. Where do we put resources to make it an excellent institution, make it better institution? And how do you do that? So really, you need to invest in the areas where you have excellence already or where you have potential to be excellence, where you're good at, and also think about really places where you can do multidisciplinary research, where the fields are going. Most of the major problems in society fall at the intersection of the disciplines, not within the discipline. Hmm. So we had a very uh, robust strategic planning process we call UB 2020, and we had a sort of a faculty involvement to look at where we're good at, took about a year and a half, and we 
sort of decided which areas to invest in, what, what kind of changes to make, whether the changes were really in curriculum or the changes were in the in investment in research infrastructure, whether the changes were really to be uh, in terms of our impact in the community. Uh, and that was the plan UB2020, which we have been following really and trying to fulfill. And that has been tremendous. That really has done a lot of good, not only for UB, but the whole region here. The objective in this conversation about data is, you know, how do, how do we across the world help students to succeed in school? You know, how do we help them do better? And uh, we were talking a little bit about, you know, the data that's now available in this conversation we had about looking back at data. We know, for example, that if a, you know, if a student fails the first two tests in a given course, right, right, you right. know, it's, it's maybe difficult for them to course correct. And we just sort of know that observing the data. How do you envision in the future that, you know, universities might use this data to get in front of these problems and help students have better outcomes? If in the first semester we, we did a lot of data analysis and we found that if a student is failing in two courses in the first semester, very little chance that the student is going to succeed. Huh. And actually they might, but the chances are very little. If, if, it, if, if we also found that if student is visiting library in the first six weeks, chances are they'll succeed. If they've never visited one, it's going to be hard for them to really do well. That's interesting. So you look back at data, you can determine who's showing up at the library. And right. and by looking back at this, you know, if they show up to the library in the you know, beginning of school, they're more likely to succeed than if they don't. Right. And actually showing up to the library is totally different today than it was before. It's really a place to read and study. It's right. really a place to maybe a group study, maybe yourself studying. It's just the, the discipline of studying huh. if somebody had that early on. Uh, one thing I should point out, we should be careful about the privacy and, and, and security of the data. Yes. Because that's really, uh, uh, you know, something that we, we always have to be careful about. We can actually do things now, you know, if the data on one campus is not enough, you can think about combining data from different universities. And there the idea is that you share each other's data, but it's encrypted data. But you can do computation without looking at somebody else's data. This homomorphic encryption exactly. is, is really an amazing new tool. I, I think that uh, it's a game changer in so many fields. Just to explain this a bit for our listeners, uh, it's a new theme, so I don't even know that I'll do it justice. But basically the idea here is imagine universities have a large quantity of data but not just one university, multiple universities. Or you might think of it in healthcare, hospitals right. that have data, multiple mm -hmm. hospitals. Now, all of us that are doing research, the more data, the better. But there are privacy issues around who has access to this data. And then, of course, there are some incentive issues around who wants to share it. But this new homomorphic encryption process enables us to research data across multiple institutions learn from all of that, but the data itself is anonymized in a way where we never really know what's going on, who it is, and it never really leaves the system. I saw right. somebody give an analogy about this. It was like, imagine putting your hands in a, in a box with rubber gloves and you could manipulate and massage the data inside the box, but then you have to take your hands out of the gloves and the data never leaves the box. I, I think it's a good analogy. You know, the technology initially was developed in the early 70s. Interesting. Not the technology, the theory. Theory was developed in the early 70s. But 
most of this, as I was saying before, is possible now because we have the computation power and the data storage power and sort of bringing these things together. Over the last three years, you've hired over 20 faculty experts in these different areas of discipline, you know, AI and data science and technology. And I know when I was up at campus, I saw this, you know, beautiful new facility you guys built not too long ago. Clearly, this is a focus for you and bringing a lot of this to the university. You know, talk a little bit more about what you're doing up there as it relates to this AI research at UB. And maybe, you know, you talked a little bit earlier about UB's history and reputation in AI. Um, but tell us more about some of those initiatives there. So, so we started this AI Institute, and we're focusing on, on, on three or four major issues. One is really healthcare. What can we learn from the data? How can we provide better tools to our, uh, our clinicians and our researchers? The second one is transportation system, where we actually established the institute. Uh, and this is, again, uh, uh, sort of think about the driverless car, think about the drones, you know, all kinds of transportation systems where AI and machine learning are critical. And the third one really is trying to understand the fundamentals in this machine learning process. You know, we use the, uh, the deep learning, but we're still not able to figure out why does it work. Right. And as a research institution, we need to figure out why things work the way they work. And that's very troubling for many of us, knowing that it worked, but we don't know why. Yeah, that's such an important part of like, you know, studying empirical data, right? You know, you, you look at something, it has statistical significance, it seems to be working, but you certainly want to be able to tell a story about, well, why did this happen? Is there some framework for why this is happening, right? Exactly. And, and so that's very fundamental. And I know a lot of other people are working on that, but that's really fundamental. And the fourth aspect really is the ethics aspect, actually. Think about, you know, using data and using these new tools. You, you're predicting a human being. You're, pre you're classifying people. Are we really doing disservice in many cases? Is the data biased? And how do we really address those issues? And that's what I was saying, that really this is where we can get our philosophers, our attorneys, you know, the law school faculty, to think about what issues we have to worry about and not leave all of this just on the, on the machine to figure it out. Well, you know, I'll confess, you mentioned this briefly earlier, um, to being personally involved with, with your efforts around this. Um, you know, since you and I have recently created this Fisher Research Collaborative at UB, which, you know, is designed to serve as a catalyst for interdisciplinary student and faculty research. If you don't mind, maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about this effort and what your hopes are for it. And then, of course, I'll chime in a bit as well. Well, first of all, uh, Greg, I want to thank you for really uh, not only giving resources to start the center, but also really being personally involved because your experience uh, and, and you are the practitioner of data, you know, you, you sort of use the, uh, the sort of large amount of data to, to really be a successful uh, uh, person in, in, in New York City. Thank you. So, so that background that you bring in and with the faculty and students having access to this, this data, having hands-on access to the data and being really mentored by people like you and the faculty that we have, I think that's an opportunity that they're not going to get anywhere. 
In fact, they probably won't get this opportunity when they graduate and go and work in a company because they would be more concentrated on a given project. So, so this is really great for us. And I think uh, we're going to create some of the best students who can go and start their own because the kind of experience they're going to get with the data that, and with the, uh, with the machine and the environment that comes with it. So, so we're very excited about it. And, and I'm hoping that it, this will expand further and as we go on and more and more of our students get access to this kind of environment. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And I'm getting a lot out of it. You know, uh, talking about data, I think it was Harvard that did a study about happiness. And they've been following people around for, I don't know, 60 years or so. And they learned that uh, one of the things that makes people the most happy is gratitude. And that the more we tell people, we say thank you to the people that contributed to our lives, the happier we are. And maybe that's my way of saying thank you. But I get a ton out of working with the students and the faculty. I can think of, you know, all sorts of projects and things that I've worked on with uh, folks over there that have contributed to the way we invest and a lot of the research and papers that we've worked on. So I'm very excited about this initiative. I'm really also excited. I'm hoping that the center will have papers coming out from it, you know, what we learn. But I can't emphasize enough to say that we have faculty who are really good, but many of them have not done the work that you have done. The work that you have done and taken the risk in the, in the market itself and the kind of high insight that you get by doing that, it's not just the data. It's really, as we've talked about before, the human, right? And, and that involvement is very critical to us, even more than the involvement with respect to resources and the machines. So I want to thank you for that. So a lot has happened in Buffalo since 2004 when you arrived. Maybe just paint the picture for us as a sort of closing set of remarks. What does the city and its residents have to look forward to that they didn't have 15 years ago? You know, the whole Western New York is a great place to live. It's probably one of the friendliest places to live. And it has everything you actually need in a big city. It has got professional sports. It has got a major university with its own sports teams. And as you know, we are doing very well right now with both basketball and the football team did really well as well. It's exciting. It it, it has the arts and theater and culture of a much larger city, a museum that's really world-renowned. And it has environments that's attracting young people. A city to be vibrant, you need young people to live in that city. And if you look at what's going on now, if you look at Canal Side, if you look at the Buffalo Niagara Medical Campus, that's where we have our medical school right now. And if you know, you, you go there in the evening and the people there, you know, I remember 15 years ago when I came for interview. My wife and I were staying in a downtown hotel. We arrived from California. We arrived around 7 p.m. in February. And we went out, let's go and eat. And there was nobody on the street. We came back to the hotel. The other day, just earlier uh, this week, actually, I was in downtown at 7 p.m. and there are people there. And it's, it's February. Huh. So the vibrancy of the city and the infrastructure is already there. And I see many Really, really nice startups coming up. They all have something unique in it. Uh, even startups in the uh, in the data analytics and uh, whole uh, analytic business coming up here as well. 
all kinds of disciplines, not limited to one area. And, and that has been tremendous. And UB has been really instrumental, has been part of this renaissance, and we really feel proud that we are able to contribute something in the Western New York. So we have a tradition on the Q Factor called the three Qs. These are three questions that we ask every guest, regardless of their expertise. So the first question is, what do you believe will be the greatest positive impact of big data over the next 10 years? And it could be anything, healthcare, climate change, science, world hunger, anything you could come up with. But what do you think might be the greatest impact of big data in the next decade? I think the greatest impact of the big data is going to be able to predict accurately whether the benefit from a given medicine, whether the benefit from scientific experiments and how the climate is going to be, are the overall quality of life of human beings. I think we would be able to really use the big data, use this large amount of analysis that we do, and we would be able to improve the quality of life by predicting accurately the, the health outcomes and so on, predicting accurately the environment that we live in and the sort of environment that the human being needs to, to have a good quality of life. So second question is, what do you see as the greatest threat posed by big data? To me, the, the greatest threat really is being biased in making decisions. The, the sort of the big data really doesn't have the knowledge about the outliers, doesn't have the, the societal advantages and disadvantages that human beings have. And till we are able to incorporate that, I think that's going to be really the greatest danger. You know, whether you think about profiling somebody, whether you think about a rare disease that's not counted in the analysis of the medicine, I think that's really going to be the greatest threat if we don't carefully consider those situations. And this is our third and last question. AI, friend or foe? You know, I think it depends on how we want to use it. To me, you know, if AI is used with humans in the middle, then I think it's going to be a friend. But if it's uh, used without any regard to the human being, it could be an enemy. But it really all depends on how we use it. That was my conversation with Satish Tripathi, an amazing man doing a fantastic job in a challenging environment. If you liked the episode, go ahead and subscribe. We have a bunch of terrific new data-driven interviews coming your way in the next few weeks. And we'd love it if you could give us a positive review. That's hugely helpful in giving the podcast more visibility. Thanks again for listening. I'm Greg Fisher. See you next time on The Q Factor. Greg Fisher is founder and portfolio manager of Quent Capital, a registered investment advisor. Economic and market views and forecasts stated by Mr. Fisher or Quent Capital are current as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. This presentation is not intended to be a solicitation of any kind. It is for general informational purposes only. Past performance does not guarantee future results. The views of the guests that appear on the Q Factor are their own and may not reflect the views of Mr. Fisher or Quent Capital.